chapter 12, about that time. What does that mean? We're going back to chapter 11, around the same time that the city of Antioch was forever changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. About that time, Herod the king, we're told, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread, and when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. And so Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church." The Herod spoken of here in Acts chapter 12 comes from a long line of men known for their brutality toward the Christian movement, all of them named Herod, by the way. His grandfather, none other than Herod the Great, the one who ordered the the slaughter of uh, innocent children all around uh, the, the area of Bethlehem and beyond when Jesus was born in an effort to destroy Jesus. His uncle, none other than Herod Antipas, Uh, the one responsible for beheading John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus Christ. I guess the apple doesn't fall far from the tree because around the time of the events recorded in Acts chapter 12, we're told that Herod Agrippa I finds himself ruling over a number of territories in Judea and Samaria, just like his granddad. He's a chameleon, the, the historians tell us, known for acting like a Roman among Romans and a Jew among Jews, a fame junkie, a glory thief, In an effort to appease the Jewish people, we're told that he seeks to bring down the Christian community for their perceived disruption of the peace by going after the most trusted leaders in the Christian movement, starting with the murder of James, the brother of John, not to be confused with James, the the half-brother of Jesus. James and John were known as the Sons of Thunder. Sounds like a pro wrestling duo. It was James and John who were part of Jesus's inner circle along with Peter. It was Peter, James, and John who alone saw Jairus's daughter raised from the dead. It was Peter, James, and John alone who saw Jesus upon the Mount of Transfiguration. It was Jesus, James, and John alone who got an inside look into Jesus's great anguish in the Garden of Gethsemane, which helps to make sense of why James and and John, along with their mother, would come to Jesus, you read about this in the gospel accounts, asking that Jesus grant the two boys the right to sit on either side of him in his eternal kingdom. Jesus's response, you have no idea what you're asking for. The, The path to glory is a path paved in blood. You will drink the cup of suffering someday. And here in Acts chapter 12, we actually see the very fulfillment of Jesus's words. The only recorded death of any of Jesus's 12 disciples in all of scripture. Herod has James executed, which pleases the Jewish people, which motivates him to do it all over again because he is a people pleaser. He's a man pleaser. He's a glory junkie. And so he has Peter arrested. He probably would have been incredibly happy to have Peter executed right there on the spot But Peter's arrest just so happens in God's providence to take place during the days of unleavened bread, the seven days following Passover, considered consecrated, meaning that no one could be tried or executed during that time. And so Herod's forced to wait. And thus he has Peter thrown in prison, guarded by four squads of soldiers, we're told. Remember the the miraculous angelic prison break that Peter was part of back in Acts chapter 5? So there's already a reputation for this. Herod can't afford to leave anything to chance. And so he brings four squads of soldiers into the story, 16 men guarding the cell, uh, four men at a time, similar to the 
intentional, comprehensive guarding of Jesus' tomb that we read about in the gospel accounts. Meanwhile, we're told that the church is gathered at the house of the mother of John Mark, praying earnestly for Peter in the midst of his chains. We're meant to ask the question at this point in the story, what good could prayer possibly do in the face of Herod's incredible power? Right? Maybe you've been there before. We, we know the theological answer to that question, right? And yet, there are times in our lives where the dots just don't connect at a heart level, where our, our right theology doesn't motivate us to go to our knees because we really don't believe in, in certain moments that, that prayer it has power that it moves the heart of the sovereign God. What good could prayer possibly do in the face of Herod's incredible power? Verse six answers that question. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out, that is Peter, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him saying, get up quickly. And the chains fell off of his hands. And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. And when they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. And it opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street. And immediately the angel left him. Verse 11, when Peter came to himself, he said, now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. First of all, the, the fact that Peter is sleeping in this moment is mind-blowing, right? So filled with the peace of Christ that he could somehow fall asleep on the eve of his execution and not just sleeping, but sleeping soundly such that the angel come to rescue him has to nudge him in the side to wake him up from his slumber, I'm reminded of the Apostle Paul's famous words, Philippians chapter four, verses six and seven, where he says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Paul says, if you want peace, don't let anxiety consume you. And God's people said, duh, Right? There's nothing uh, in the realm of rocket science there that Paul says, if you want peace, don't let anxiety consume you. But it's not novel information that Paul's trying to communicate, but rather a reminder because our fickle hearts stink at embracing it. Right? The default of the human heart is to go into worry mode. Worry is one of those things that, that we do in order to try to gain control of a situation that's out of our control. In some sense, every worrisome thought, every anxious thought functions like a false prophet, telling us that God's not good, telling us that God's not sovereign, telling us that God's not wise, that if you just think about the situation a little bit more, if you just breathe the air of anxiety just, just a little bit more, perhaps you can manipulate the situation in a way that changes the outcome. I've, I've given this illustration before. It's like what you see when a golfer post-swing contorts his or her body in an effort to try to manipulate the path of the ball, which you can't do once the, the ball leaves the club head, right? But that's what the human heart tends to do. Worry doesn't give us any more control of our situation. And so Paul says, instead of worrying about things that we can't control, why not talk to the one who is in control? 
That every time you're tempted to, to try to manipulate your circumstances by dwelling on them just a little more, Psalm 55, 22, cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. Every time you're tempted to, to try to manipulate your circumstances by dwelling on them just a little bit more, 1 Peter 5, 7, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Here's something pretty incredible to consider. Coming back to Philippians 4, 7, that word guard, that God will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus, that word guard is a military word, like the, the guarding of a fortress during enemy attack that God promises to protect us like a warrior from the anxiety that would consume us otherwise. Here's something to think about. The, the most powerful guard, to use that language, in Peter's prison cell wasn't any of the soldiers to whom he was bound in chains. The most powerful guard in Peter's prison cell was God guarding his heart and mind in Christ Jesus. It's amazing. And here's why we need that. Because every prayer is not gonna be answered the way we think it should. We, we don't need our hearts and mind guarded if all of our prayers are being answered the way we think they should. That doesn't require a peace that surpasses all understanding, right? A, a peace that surpasses all understanding is one that carries you through the worst of circumstances, one that helps you sleep soundly on the eve of your execution, not knowing if your deliverance will, will come in life or in death. An angel of the Lord wakes Peter from his slumber and leads him out of captivity, just like God led the Israelites out of captivity in Egypt. Remember, this is during the days of unleavened bread, the time of the Passover. No detail is too small in scripture. God is revealing himself as a redeemer yet again. The, the way the story's told is in such a way that no one but God can possibly get the credit, right? As Peter slumbers his way through the prison, thinking that he's caught up in a dream the entire time, only coming to his senses once he's standing out in the street, a free man. It's pretty much God's MO. Salvation is not by works, but by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, so that God alone gets the glory. Verse 12 goes on to tell us, as the story unfolds, when he, Peter, realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she let him in. No, that's not what she did. In her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. You can just picture, picture Peter here. And they said to her, you're out of your mind. Encouraging words, right? You probably get that in your community group from time to time. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. And then he departed and went to another place. You got the, the church gathering together, praying, verse 12, in the late hours of the night, maybe even the wee hours of the morning. And Peter comes knocking at the door, and here we get a window, a glimpse into the human heart. I believe, help my unbelief. We see it in mass in, in the home of John Mark's mother. God, I believe with all my heart that you can free Peter. I believe it because I've seen you do it before. Do what only you can do by the strength of your mighty hand. At the same time, there's no way he's standing right outside the house right now. There, there's something in that for, for people like me, if I'm honest. For those of us who 
who pray with hearts full of belief and yet who are oftentimes surprised when God moves mightily rather than anticipating it or expecting it. Peter's banging on the door, probably looking around to make sure that that the cops aren't out and about. Like, can I get into the house, please? And when his friends finally believe it's him, they cry out for joy so loudly that they probably wake the neighbors. This is a a humorous moment in the book of Acts. You can just hear Peter, I love you guys, but are you seriously trying to get me killed right now? Speaking of, I think it's incredibly important to note that James who was killed in Acts chapter 12, was no less loyal to God than Peter. The prosperity gospel would say that James and perhaps his praying friends lacked faith, which led not to health and riches, but his untimely execution. Meanwhile, Peter and his praying friends were full of faith, and Peter lived to see another day. And that's just not true. This episode involving Peter is filled with human slumbering, It's filled with human stumbling. It's filled with human skepticism. Not only that, and we talked about this before as a church, Hebrews 11 presents to us a list of people, all of them commended for their faith, some of whom stopped the mouths of lions, others of whom were sawn in two. Those are two very different circumstances, right? That faith isn't always rewarded in the same way in this life. Some of us will love Jesus and live a pretty comfortable life. Others of us will love Jesus and will suffer a great deal for it. And most of us will ebb and flow between seasons of comfort and affliction, seasons of triumph and tragedy. I mentioned this a few weeks ago in the very first sermon of 2019. None of us knows how this year is gonna play out. None of us is is sovereign to, to know how every one of our circumstances is gonna go. It may be a year of great laughter and dancing. It may be a year of great weeping and mourning, but in and through it all, God is guiding us toward his holy habitation, toward a deeper experience of him, toward a greater intimacy with him, toward a deeper abiding sense of his presence. The question is, will we see him? He's not only sovereign, wise, and good in all circumstances, but he's present. He was present with James in death and present with Peter in deliverance. He goes on to say in verse 18, now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death In Roman practice, a a soldier who who lost his prisoner, particularly a prisoner facing execution, was himself subject to execution. It's why a a professional executioner drove a spear into Jesus' side, bursting his heart sack and causing blood and water to flow forth from his body. Jesus' executioner had one job to make sure that Jesus was good and dead, which is why the argument that Jesus just passed out doesn't hold up to, to scrutiny. The soldiers here in Acts chapter 12 had one job to make sure that Peter was still in chains come morning, a job that they failed to accomplish, sending them to the gallows. Verse 19 goes on to tell us, then he, Herod, went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord and having persuaded Blastus, that's a great name for a dog, by the way, Having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. 
On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately, verse 23 tells us, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. The Bible is not PG. The the people of Tyre and Sidon hear that Herod's in town, having made his way to Caesarea for a festival held in Caesar's honor, and, and they're well aware of two things. They depend upon Herod desperately, his generosity, if there's to be food on the table, and secondly, Herod's incredibly angry with them. Why? We don't, we don't really know. And so the people set up a meeting with Herod in order to, to make peace, which Herod sees as an opportunity to feed his ego. And so he proceeds to set up a throne room in the theater in Caesarea. And notice the language of royalty and power here. The language of the king's chamberlain, the king's country, his royal robes, his seat upon the throne, The well-known Jewish historian Josephus recorded this moment outside of scripture and he said this, clad in a garment woven completely of silver so that its texture was indeed wondrous, he, Herod, entered the theater at daybreak. There, the silver, he says, illumined by the touch of the first rays of the sun was wondrously radiant and by its glitter inspired fear and awe in those who gazed intently upon it that Herod's out to make clear to the people of Tyre and Sidon in this moment that his provision requires nothing less than worship. There's only one problem. Not only is Herod not worthy of worship, but he's not the ultimate sovereign in this story. He's kind of a big deal until he becomes compost for the royal garden through an infestation of intestinal worms. Is there anything more humiliating would any of you share that illness with your, even your most trusted friends? You'd find a way to, to try to nice it up to explain your symptoms, right? I'm reminded of Daniel chapter five, the death of the Babylonian king, Belshazzar. If you were around for our series in the book of Daniel, you might remember this. A man who still had the smell of wine on his breath from toasting the pagan gods of Babylon with the Lord's fine china when the Persian king Cyrus in God's providence took the city and destroyed the Babylonian king. Because as we talked about in the book of Daniel, kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall, but the kingdom of God is everlasting. Russ Ramsey, in his commentary on the book of Acts, he says it this way. He says, Herod's death was a reminder that God held the power to strike someone dead where they stood, just as he had the authority to command a worm to take up residence in the bowel of a king at such a time that later, at the precise moment when the king was accepting praises due to God alone, the worm outgrew its confines and caused such pain in its host that the king had to be carried to his bed where he lay until dead. Unbelievable. I know of at least three Herods that scripture records who sought to derail the Christian movement and every one of them failed miserably. And Herods since have come and gone and sought to derail the Christian movement, sought to do away with, eradicate the church and yet we sit here this very morning as a testimony that it cannot be done. It's God who's sovereignly seated on the throne of heaven. His throne is way bigger than any Herod that this world could think of or dream of. His power is mightier than any Herod. 
And by the way, he gets the last word in every story, including the the grand story of redemption that we're all caught up in, which is why verse 24 would go on to say, in closing out this chapter, but the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark, which is a subtle indicator of the missionary journeys that John Mark is going to join up with Paul and Barnabas as we get into uh, the subsequent chapters of this book of the Bible. As we've seen time and time again in the book of Acts, nothing and no one can keep the gospel from spreading. John Stott says in his commentary, one cannot fail to admire the artistry with which Luke depicts the complete reversal of the church's situation. At the beginning of the chapter, Herod is on the rampage, arresting and persecuting church leaders. At the end, he is himself struck down and dies. The chapter opens with James dead, Peter in prison, and Herod triumphing. It closes with Herod dead, Peter free, and the word of God triumphing. Such is the power of God, he says, to overthrow hostile human plans and to establish his own plans in their place. There is no threat to the church. There is no obstacle to growth that God cannot overcome. Incredible passage of scripture presents us with a number of significant existential questions. I'll give you just a few as we close this morning. The first and most important, I would argue, is one, are we living for our own glory or the glory of God? Man was never created for, for the pursuit of his own glory. The, man was created to glorify God by enjoying him forever. If our aim is the glory of self, it will be to our own destruction, whether in this age or the age to come, that all who oppose the one true king will face his wrath like Herod. Herod's death, a foreshadowing of the final judgment, the second coming of Christ. But, just like verse 24, but here's where the beauty of the gospel comes to bear this morning, that Jesus lived the perfect sinless life that we could never live, humbling himself on behalf of proud sinners like you and me in never ceasing glad submission to God the Father. If you wanna see humility, look in the face of Jesus Christ. Not only that, Jesus died the death that you and I deserve to die as the sins associated with our empty pursuits of self-exaltation like Herod were put upon Jesus and he was punished in our place. Not only that, Jesus rose from the grave conquering sin and death on behalf, hear me, on behalf of glory thieves like you and me. Isn't that crazy? The grace of God. That because of who Jesus is and what he's done, we who deserve destruction can know the joy of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. You might say, I'm a great sinner. I'm a great glory thief. Thief, To which I would say Jesus is a greater savior. Secondly, do we truly believe in the power of prayer? Why is it prayer, why is it that prayer is that ministry that gets treated like the, Redheaded stepchild of the church. Why is it that prayer is least engaged in the church? The more I read scripture, the less I understand it. This isn't the first time that we see the significance of prayer in the life of the early church. It was part of their DNA. It was, it was really, it was part of their arsenal, part of their weaponry. In his sermon on this morning's passage, which is probably way better than mine, Charles Spurgeon says this about earnest prayer to use the language of verse five of Acts chapter 12. He says, 
There are blessings which, like ripe fruit, drop into your hand the moment you touch the bough. But there are others which require you to shake the tree again and again until you make it rock with the vehemence of your exercise, for then only will the fruit fall down. My brethren, he says, we must cultivate importunity in prayer, meaning persistence, to the point of annoyance. While the sun is shining and when the sun has gone down, still should prayer be kept up and fed with fresh fuel so that it burns fiercely and flames on high like a beacon fire blazing toward heaven. And that'll tweet. Think about this for just a second. The prayers of the saints carried more power than all of Herod's kingdom. Let me say that again. The prayers of the saints carried more power than all of Herod's kingdom. Do we believe that? Because as I said, I don't know, about a year ago, as we dove into a series on the church and attempted to cast a little vision, if anything of lasting significance is to be accomplished, the church must be a people on their faces before the Lord, asking the Spirit of God to move in power. Not because it earns us anything with God, but because he's worthy to be approached and to be trusted with our prayers and he's mighty to move when we come to him. As an old friend once said to me, God moves mountains, but prayer moves God. Last question. Do we truly trust God? And listen, I know that's a loaded question because the answer is yes and no. We're human. We believe God. Help our unbelief. But here as we look at Acts chapter 12, we do face those questions yet again. Do we, do we believe that God can deliver us anytime he chooses? There, there's no amount of guards, there's no prison walls that are too thick for him to redeem. There is no bondage in Egypt, quote unquote, that's too big for him to rescue his people out of. Do we believe that God can deliver us anytime he chooses? Do we trust God in those situations in which he chooses not to deliver us like James? Do we believe that he's not only sovereign, but wise and good, that he has a plan and that part of that plan is to draw us in greater dependence and trust on him such that we might be able to declare all the more, Jesus is enough, which as I've said before, is one of the greatest uh, statements that an evangelist could possibly make, particularly in the midst of their suffering. The hymnist William Cowper once said, deep in unfathomable minds of never failing skill, he, God, treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. In the mid-19th century, Scottish missionary, I'm gonna roll with these Scottish guys lately. Scottish missionary John Patton sought to take the gospel to the New Hebrides, an island region in the South Seas. And within a matter of months, his wife died from tropical fever and his newborn son died within two months of birth. In light of that heartbreaking loss, Patton recorded the following words in a diary. He said, this is strength, this is peace to feel in entering on every day that all its duties and trials have been committed to the Lord Jesus, that come what may, he will use us for his own glory and our real good. That we can allow our circumstances to make us bitter and resentful, 
maybe even angry. But Acts chapter 12, God invites us to something better, trust. And again, don't hear me saying that that's easy. Do hear me saying that it's wise and that it's good. To say with William Cowper, behind a frowning providence, there hides a smiling face. Behind every tragic experience in life is a wise, sovereign, and good God. That because he gave us his son, we can trust that, that everything else he gives us is for his glory and for our real good as he guides us toward his holy habitation present in both deliverance and death. We get the privilege in, in just a moment of worshiping that wise, sovereign, and good God in a number of ways as his gathered people. As we do week in and week out, we get to come to the, the table and receive of the elements, the bread representing the broken body, the cup representing his shed blood. If you're a Christian, that meal is for you. I, I encourage you this morning as you prepare to come and receive of those elements to sit for a moment with, with the wonder of God's grace in the face of Jesus Christ, to sit for a moment and put yourself in Herod's shoes because there, there has been no human being to walk planet Earth that at some point has not functioned as a fame junkie, just like Herod, just like our first parents, Adam and Eve, in the garden. Yet Jesus stooped down and entered into the slums of human history and put on flesh, and he lived a life of humility, the life that we refuse to live, and he died on behalf of fame junkies like you and me. Get an opportunity to sit with that for just a moment and to allow, allow it to lead us to the cross of Christ and to come and receive the elements in celebration and remembrance of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. There will be people in the back of the room to pray with you. What a novel idea, right? That we would take advantage of prayer coming out of Acts chapter 12. The back of this auditorium should be full with people praying together in light of what we've just looked at in scripture, believing that, that God is fully capable of, of entering into any circumstance and that he is with us in both the good and the bad and, and he has a plan and we can trust him and we can run to him expecting and anticipating him to move when we come to him and engage him in prayer when we approach his throne of grace. And lastly, we get to sing to this wise, sovereign, and good God. And we're gonna sing things beyond those characteristics of him because his nature, being, and character supersedes and is far beyond just those three words to describe him.